0: Before they hire me for jobs, I was told once that you're qualified but you have to cut your hair, you will not be allowed to use Brenda as your name in this job, you cannot use the women's toilet, you cannot wear women's clothes, you cannot even have a boyfriend, you know, all of those.
1: Welcome to Proudly Asian, a podcast series that tells bold and proud stories of Asians by Asians. I'm Isabel Wong, a financial journalist who wants to uncover the many Asian stories around us that are waiting to be told. There's never just one way to look at Asians. This podcast will take you through a deep dive into the life stories, struggles and triumphs of young Asians around the world. On today's episode, we have Dr. Brenda Allegro, a transgender registered psychologist and gender studies lecturer born and raised in the Philippines. Currently based in Hong Kong, Brenda is one of the few trans identifying academics in Hong Kong, if not the only one. She talks to us about the perceptions and stereotypes of transgender people in the Philippines and Hong Kong, and how to navigate gender identities and intersectionality in Asia. Welcome back to Proudly Asian. To continue our International Women's Day special this month, we feel that it is important to celebrate women who aren't necessarily born or assigned as women physically, because trans women are women if they choose to identify as one. And their empowerment and well-being should also be an important part of International Women's Day. So we are so honoured today to be speaking with Brenda, a transgender psychologist and lady, Lecturer on this episode of Proudly Asian. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you, Isabel. Labuai, as we say in the Philippines. Good evening to everyone. And Brenda, um, I'm from the Philippines, but I'm based here in Hong Kong. So it's so nice
1: to be here. Nice. Mabuai to you too, Brenda. Now, before we start off the conversation for our listeners to know a little bit more about you, why don't we start with a question that I ask every single guest who is uh-huh. on Proudly Asian, which is who are you? What are you and where did you grow up?
0: Uh, I am a Filipina, a Trans-Filipina to be very specific. I was born in the Philippines. I also grew up in the Philippines. Uh, I was raised Catholic um, because the Philippines is a predominantly Christian or Catholic country. Um, And uh, I studied in a Catholic school all throughout. And I studied um, psychology uh, for my bachelor's, my master's and my PhD. And then I was working in the Philippines for about um, 12 years in in corporate HR or human resources before, uh, while I was finishing my PhD, that's how I landed my job here at the University of Hong Kong in 2011, so that's 12 years ago, um, at the Faculty of Education originally. Uh, and then we moved to the Faculty of Arts, you know, when we already formed the gender studies, when they formed the gender studies program. So that's... Who I am and where I'm from. Nice. Proud Trans Filipina or Trans a <laughs> uh, proud migrant worker here in Hong Kong.
1: I mean, just out of curiosity, very quickly, why did you decide to choose psychology to be an area of study?
0: Well, I think for a long time I've wanted to be a doctor. So ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor. I, I studied in a university that specialized in uh, medicine and pre and then an allied medical. Um, um, sciences. And when I was having a conversation with our guidance counselor, so she was facilitating a career counseling um session, um she she kind of guided me that if I wanted to have a career outside of medicine and psychology could be a potential um uh, our, our the best choice. And the best part of that is also understanding that uh, I think psychology is able to explain human behaviors, not just mine. But everybody else's. So I maybe I wanted to understand more uh why I am what you know what I am, why I am who I am, why others do not understand the same way, why others are kind of similar to me, why others are very different. Yeah. So that got me really interested in psychology.
1: Going back to the point that you mentioned you're a trans woman yourself. So I'm just wondering, at what point did you realize that your gender and who you really are was a mismatch? And how did that influence your experience growing up in the Philippines?
0: I think the other people around me were the ones who were emphasizing that there is a mismatch and that I am not what I am presenting myself or how I am identifying myself as. Because it's like as early as I could remember, I was five years old, I was six years old. I clearly felt like I was um, just like other girls. And I remember when we were playing, I was playing with my, my playmates who were mostly girls. And uh, it, this is a very weird practice, you know, like when there's a peeing time, so we pee at the same time. You know, sometime in the afternoon, let's just say, well, uh, we're playing and we'll, we'll have a schedule to pee. And I remember one of my playmates asking me, how come I pee like them, even if my anatomy is a little different from them? And I just thought that that anatomy is just for peeing, and my who I am, you know, as a girl, just like everybody else, is not about anatomy. So I didn't go go through uh, gender studies. I, I'm I'm still like five or six year old years old around that time. I didn't know much. I don't know much, and it's enough that I know that um, it's a very strong inner sense of understanding oneself. You know that I am a girl. That was more than enough. And, Later on, when I went to university, when I was understanding what gender identity means, that's how I realized. So that is gender identity. It's your internal sense, inner sense of gender. Uh, it is known to you mostly. You know, It it, it depends on you to tell someone else it, what you are, who you are. And the thing is, I didn't really come out to anyone. Uh, so we didn't also use the term transgender back in the day. Uh, we we had a local term in the Philippines called bakla. Bakla is like um, an inclusive term that uh, in Filipino that includes trans women, uh, gay men, gay, tra- drag queen, everybody else in between. Um, and uh, I was given that label, and I thought that uh, being given the bakla label, I felt that I was still very feminine in my core. Um, I didn't mind if I get um uh reprimanded by 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 authorities around me like school teachers, you know, that I I have to wear school uniforms, the male school uniforms, or haircut that's supposed to be masculine instead of feminine. But I know deep down I'm still a girl. You know, I can look like this, but deep down I am a girl. So um that's how it was like growing up. Mm-hmm. Trans.
1: So in that sense, there's kind of like an inclusive term to describe, you know, who you are and the LGBTQ plus community in Tagalog. But I also know that in the Philippines, it's also a very religious society. So I'm wondering yeah. how are trans people perceived in the Philippines?
0: I think the Philippine society is generally just tolerant of um, LGBTQI people. Um, to some extent, people think that we are accepted, but we are not. You know, like if we look at acceptance um, on a legal basis, then we don't have legal um, acceptance in the Philippines. We do not have anti-discrimination ordinances or laws. We don't have gender recognition laws. We don't have same-sex or equality union laws. So that's one. On the other hand, we are very visible. If I compare, let's say, being LGBT in the Philippines versus being LGBT in Hong Kong, it appears that we seem to be more readily visible back home you know, than here. There's like... Um, um, maybe here, you, you would find LGBT people in in the usual places like, you know, Petticoat Lane or um, FLM, certain bars, you know, but or if it's a pride event or if there is like a Mardi Gras, but uh, in the Philippines, almost every day you'd find someone who's LGBT, so it, it feels like it's a highly tolerant society. But I guess one of this, the key uh, answers to that as well is our history. So, uh, we were also colonized. So we were colonized by Spain for almost uh, 400 years. And then after that, by America for almost 50 years, more nest around that uh, uh, time, time period. And before colonization, um, the Philippines has a very inclusive and quite matriarchal society. So we have groups of people called Babaylans or Catalonans or Asos. and then Wherever parts of the Philippines, there's a particular label to To these groups of people, they're practically like high priests, uh, shamans, healers, you know, and uh, Amazon warriors. And most of them are women and queer people, you know, so gay men, trans women, intersex, um, non-binary of the terms that we use today. So they are usually part of these groups. And maybe that's why in the collective DNA of Filipinos, there is like that seeming understanding that we've always been around. They may they may hate us because of the the colonization effects, you know, the religion that was introduced, particularly Christianity. So Christianity has actually twisted, you know, the, the acceptance of, of um, LGBTQI people, but at the same time even pushed women to the margins. So that's why from an originally matriarchal society, a Philippine society became also patriarchal and very highly heteronormative, just like many others out there. Um. So I we would we could, uh, surmise that it is because of colonization. Um, a lot of us LGBT people get um, uh, or hear from conservative, uh, Christians that um, it is immoral, it's a sin, it's unacceptable to be LGBT. You know, there is even this cliche that goes, "We accept the sinner, but not the sin." So it's referring to being LGBT. Like, okay, that's how you. do present yourself, but you cannot do this, you cannot do that. You know, what that that makes your identity real or authentic. Yeah, so that's how we, we live through our day to day. And it may sometimes um eventually lead to discrimination, which is very much rampant in our society. It also leads to violence. Because of course, even if someone is a Christian, it doesn't actually mean it doesn't stop them, you know, from perpetrating violence towards LGBT people.
1: Mm-hmm. What about your day-to-day experience back in the Philippines as well? Like, have you ever been discriminated against? Has anyone ever said something to you?
0: Yeah. Um, and using the religious context, you know, there is this um, local expression in the Philippines. It translated in English that LGBTQI people should be crucified. Yeah, or bakla ipapo sa krus. Um and they they mostly say this towards uh trans women, uh gay men and uh, queer men. And uh that when I was trying to analyze that, you know, the outcome of the the colonial beliefs that um uh LGBTQI people are sinners, that it is a sin, it is immoral, it's wrong. And at the same time, if you look at the pathological history of being LGBT, there was a point in history where Um, homosexuality and variations to homosexuality was included in the DSM as abnormality and eventually in the ICD or International Classification of Diseases. I guess putting that together plus the knowledge that in some other societies, they criminalize um, queerness. Um, like In our nearby countries like uh, Indonesia and Malaysia, the extreme uh, Islamic practices there has also criminalized um, LGBT relations. So I guess the society has put that together and that's how they look at us. They also look at us as entertainers. So for me, on my day-to-day experience, I sometimes get asked if um, very, very stereotypical jobs, you know, I mean, are you working in the salon or the parlor? Are Are you a hairstylist or a makeup artist? And the thing is, there's nothing wrong with that. It is just stereotyping that we're all doing the same thing. Um, that they say that um, they would ask if I have plans to have um, um, surgeries in my body, or did I already have surgeries in my body? Did I have like a, 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 my genitalia uh, reconstructed already and all that? A very invasive questions. So they they even ask um, um, how do you have sex, you know, and uh, uh, what is your position in sex and all that. You know, which can be invasive and very surprising at first. And then we just try to get used to it because that's how they condition us. But I also experienced being discriminated in uh, in schools, in the university. I remember one time um, because we had this mandatory um, military student military um, service, which I think is quite similar in Thailand and in Korea, South Korea, and we call it ROTC or ROTC. And then so it's for the first two years of university. And uh, the male students were all required to have their haircut similar to other soldiers. So they they give measurements to it, like three by four, you know, three here, four, four fingers back at an the nape. And so we are forced to to have those types of haircut. And I feel that it's very unfeminine at that point. You know, the your restrictive ideas of feminine and masculine, and it, it forces you to be masculine, so, so to speak. And I felt that there was a form of discrimination. You know, for us, you did it. Didn't, want to to look masculine and the way that um I would eventually adjust my uniform to have a feminine silhouette and sometimes I get called out by our teachers or professors and they'd say that you're wearing the wrong uniform that's not the right way to wear your uniform they would even call out my bags you know if it has laces or my shoes if it was like a ballet flats um uh, there was a time that they didn't allow me to enroll because I was wearing uh, makeup i uh, at least i had like i uh, eyebrows, uh, eyebrow, uh, eyebrow line, and eyeliner, and they didn't allow me to enroll, and it it felt traumatizing to to go through that. But other than that, there's also like the usual catcalls, heckling, and catcalls in the street. And one of those expressions that I mentioned earlier is that you should be crucified on the cross. You know, or should be crucified. Yeah, and and um, whatever becomes the trend. So I remember that there were some films in in Filipino films. That uh, makes fun of LGBT people, so if that and that becomes comedy to to the audiences, and the audience would eventually pick it up and then later on it becomes an expression, and they would throw it out at us. and that can be very embarrassing. Mm-hmm. and the worst that I experienced would be be you know being discriminated against in job applications, you know, like and the thing is they will not tell you to your face all the time, but I would feel, I would know that it's because I presented myself like this. Um, Although there have been a few times that they specifically told me what to do before they hire me for jobs. That I was told once that you're qualified but you have to cut your hair. You will not be allowed to use Brenda as your name in this job. You cannot use the women's toilet. You cannot wear women's clothes. You cannot even have a boyfriend. You know, all of those. Yeah.
1: Wow, but now you work as a lecturer in Hong Kong, and you are one of the few trans-identifying academics in Hong Kong, if not the only one. Yeah. How are trans people perceived in Hong Kong and in academia?
0: Uh, yeah, I think that's one of the tricky parts. Also, like um, sometimes we wish you know we are visible because or we would know who else is like us, right? Uh, because it's so it, it can be very sad also being like an exception rather than a uh, part of the rule, right? So when I moved to Hong Kong. The first thing I realize is that there is lack of visibility for trans uh people. I may actually think I see uh some visibilities to of, of lesbian of lesbian women or lesbians and also probably gay men. Maybe the the more masculine presenting gay men. Um, but uh very feminine or effeminate gay men, very queer men, non-binary, uh uh, and, you know, drag performers can only be usually seen on uh, in major performance places. And then trans women um, uh, are, are quite less visible. The thing is, someone might also ask, some of the listeners might, or uh, viewers might also ask, but then, how would you know, you know, that someone is LGBT? Of course, at first, we would not know. And we're not supposed to know. We're not supposed to train our eyes uh, and our ears towards that. But then, unfortunately... That like uh, I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the Philippines that has very um, strong visibility of LGBT people everywhere, in spite of the lack of acceptance. Um, that kind of trained our our minds, our senses into understanding or knowing who is LGBT and not. And so when I moved here, that's what I felt at first that there's lesser visibility to compare. So I had to be extra careful. But the second thing I noticed also is there's like a sense of being stealth. Or being less recognizable as trans, so some of us may have total um, uh, recognizability, and opportunity uh, for others, and the others may be least recognizable as trans, and the others are in between. So maybe I'm somewhere in the in between, going to the less recognizable, because I didn't get noticed um, for the most part. You know, that's when I go to women's toilets or uh, you know changing rooms. But I did have one. Very traumatizing experience, you know, like five, or six years ago, or maybe seven years ago already. Whereby I, I usually go to this toilet somewhere in the in in central, and uh, for the first time, uh, I went to the toilet and um, I just had top surgery and I felt great to have uh, breasts at that point. And at that point, I was on hormones um, and. I, I just bought this um, top from Maple, and then I changed, and then I realized after changing in the, in the women's toilet, I realized that my the top that I wore is reversed or inverted. So I had to go to another toilet, another women's toilet, change that. And when I went there, I already got approached by people who introduced themselves as authorities, you know, and surprisingly, and they asked me why would why would I go to two with a women's toilet in a consecutive time uh, time frame. And then they asked me already the most invasive questions. They asked me, are you a real woman? Are, uh, do you have a vagina? What's the gender marker on your Hong Kong ID? Did you undergo the surgery? And then they asked for my Hong Kong ID. And it kind of weakened me uh, at, at the spot, you know, and I felt that um, I was never... I mean, it, it's different to get asked those questions in a different country or in a different place. You know, the uncertainty. You know, maybe because uh, uh, I was I didn't speak Cantonese as well or Mandarin, so I uh, I I would only be able to communicate in English, and I don't know if there would be no one system language that can be that can contribute to our um uh, this uh, um, lack of understanding. Mm. And then the last things that they asked was to inspect my things. You know, my bag, my wallet and my phone. And unfortunately, on my phone, I have photos. Well, I had photos of my surgery. So I had myself there. But at the same time, I have photos, let's say, of my crushes. I have this superhero crushes, you know, the the, MC, the, the Marvel or the DC actors, Chris Hemsworth, you know, the um, Henry Cavill, whatever, right? Chris Evans. They're on my phone. Uh, Fitties and or shortness. And then I was also dating some... Guys, and it's too private, right? But then some of these guys would just send photos of themselves. You know, they send it if they send it by WhatsApp. I didn't realize back then that the phones, or I mean, the photos and the videos get saved on the phone. So they got saved on the phones. I I really got nervous. But when they when they saw those photos, that's when I realized that. So you don't you're not interested in women. You go to women's toilet because maybe you have to pee or whatever. But you're not there. To be a voyeur, because they didn't find any evidence, you know, Mm -hmm. of of such, and that hadn't really disappointed me because that's how they probably understand trans people, you know, that uh, we look, we yeah, we could be androgynous to someone's senses, but that that the first thing that they think of is that we are perverts, you Mm -hmm. know. So, and my phone proved that I am not a pervert. That I have sex life and romantic life outside, you know. And um then eventually they asked me in a more humane tone, you know, like when do I plan to have further surgeries? As if I am supposed to have further surgeries. You know, it's like it's it's like people are expecting trans people to have many surgeries, you know, that we have to complete a process just for us to be accepted, which is disappointing. When I realized after that event, it it traumatized me, you know. It uh, eventually, I, I was careful using the the toilets. I was, if if it's possible for me to use the the mobility or the disability toilets, I would. And this brings, you know, um, the the need, you know, for gender inclusive or gender neutral toilets.
1: That's such a horrible experience because even for authorities, I'm just not really sure what gives them the right to ask those kinds of really personal questions, and it just sounds really messed up that you really had to have photos of guys to prove that you're not dangerous I mean <laughs> in a sense it's like one's sexual orientation cannot really be complete proof to prove whether or not a person is dangerous so I mean somehow they use that to gauge if you're dangerous or not it was just it just sounds ridiculous but another piece of news that came in um, in Hong Kong in March is that the city's immigration department has gone ahead to suspend the application to change gender gender marker on the hong kong id cards which happened this month right but despite back in february the court of final appeal ruled that it's unconstitutional to require sex reassignment surgery to be completed before being allowed for someone to change their gender marker on their id so i'm just wondering if you have any views to share about this piece of news
0: well i don't anymore want to comment about how the you know they they handle these things um Uh, I'm not even sure if they're open to feedback or criticism. You know, because Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure if we still have a voice. Basically, you know, the ideal scenario is that uh, we should not be required to undergo um, medical procedures just for us to prove who and what we are. You know, Mm -hmm. and it's it's very sad that that's how uh certain societies view LGBT people. Automatically, that we are perverts. You know, um, like when they when they catch thieves or other kinds of criminals, um, they don't really profile their sexual orientations or gender identities in public, you know, and then they don't have those researches that, that can actually back their uh, misconceptions if indeed we are criminals or perverts, So uh, many, of, many trans people don't even want to transition don't even need to transition and cannot even transition for others. You know, not everybody have the same access towards transitioning. And um, one aspect of transitioning is not just medical, but then legal transitioning. So documents being changed is very pivotal for us because it's not just being in this place, but when we fly out of this place and go somewhere else, that's another part of our journey. So imagine if a trans woman, you know, uh, with a male gender marker on their passport and a Hong Kong ID, let's say, travel to another country. And then the disparity in the presentation versus the, the documents, the travel documents, um, caused them to be interrogated or investigated further. And um, in fact, trans people have already experienced, especially trans women, have experienced being strip-searched, and then they're asked the most invasive of questions. So definitely trans people experience a lot of human rights violations already and being forced to change your body, you know, like being sterilized, uh, uh, being forced to sterilize just to be recognized legally at that gender, mm-hmm. you know, that that's really sad. Especially if we can contribute greatly to society, you know, we can be a great part of the workforce, we can be an ideal part of society and yet uh, we cannot live as fully or as authentically as everybody else. Mm -hmm.
1: I also want to talk about the work that you do um, at the University of Hong Kong because you currently teach gender studies at the university. So I'm just wondering what exactly do you cover in the courses that you teach and any interesting observations in the sense of like levels of understanding amongst students that you teach?
0: So uh, uh, I teach a couple of uh, common core courses. So in those cases, uh, it's a, always a bigger class, like 120 students per class per semester, and not all of those students are interested, you know, in, in in studying gender and sexuality. I guess what lured them is the word sexuality, you know. I think they get they get really um, interested with the term sexuality because maybe there's an aspect of porn, you know, seeing talking about sex and positions of sex, you know, and. Sex techniques, probably those are some of their misconceptions, and it reflects um, the lack of um, uh, robust or comprehensive sex education. Um, not just in Hong Kong, but where they come from. You know, others would others say that they come from Korea. Others say they come from mainland. Others say they come from Thailand or the Philippines, and they 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 unanimously would cite that there is this lack of sex education in secondary schools. So like sex education is is not about just understanding how to wear a condom. sex education should also be about a person you know or personhood about exploring one's sexuality and understanding it um like I, I in my classes, I talk about all sexual orientations, like not just homosexuality but also asexuality, you know that there are people who don't feel that they want to have sex or that, that they don't experience the same amount of romantic and or sexual attractions and desires. Then I also talk about um. Little histories of um, um, historical and cultural aspects of gender and sexuality, like in South Asia or in India, they have what we call um, the hijras, uh, similar to the ones I was talking about in the in pre colonial Philippines. Similar also to the two spirit people in First Nations um, in the U S. or in North America. Similar to the fa- fafines of the Samoa. Similar to the five gender. Culture of Sulawesi, Indonesia. Uh, that Sulawesi has a tribe called uh, the Bugis. Bugis tribe and the Bugis has a five gender system, that includes uh, the cisgender man or man, woman, trans woman, trans man, and androgynous um, in between genders. You know, and then the 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 one who's androgynous is usually the one assigned to be like the high priest or the holy person among them. And they have existed for like thousands of years. So giving all of these kinds of lessons, um, open, I guess, the, 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 the minds of the students and understanding that I me, mean, LGBT is, uh, timeless. It's, it's universal. It is part of cultures. Um, there is no harm there, but except LGBT experience, the harm on a day to day basis. Maybe I also talk about what's happening in, let's say the U S, you know, like they're now introducing anti drag or anti trans laws. And, um, like, at one point, they are being progressive, and then at, at some point, they are now becoming more aggressive and becoming violent, um, especially towards young LGBT people. Like, they're stripping away the right towards autonomy of the body or self-determination, you know. And uh, we showed them some films or videos that explore LGBT identities. We just showed them what is really out there, basically.
1: And I know that one of your courses is actually titled as Trans-Asia, Navigating Transness and Intersections in Asia. So I'm just wondering if you have gotten um, any interesting questions from your students, like how do you really navigate transness in Asia?
0: Um, I guess when the conversations with them, uh, because those are the major uh, students, the students that take the major in gender studies. So basically, those it's a small group. Uh, they're about 25 or less than 30 um and these are the ones who are more committed towards understanding studying gender so when they ask questions uh, at least how i feel is they are very invested towards understanding or you know the the, the cultural the, the legal the the social aspects you know of transness in some asian contexts. like when we cover let's say beauty pageant cultures so I would talk about or teach about the beauty pageant cultures in um, the Philippines and in Thailand and how this adds to the visibility or the discourse of of being trans in society and can help eventually uh, advance uh, the rights of transgender people in those countries because they sometimes gain access to... um, uh, jobs or uh, opportunities, you know, or or they they get they some some of them get discovered to model or to be um, entertainers or to join um, show business. But at the same time, um, society still treat uh, trans pageantry as like a circus, you know. So especially, um, it's just a way for them to elicit fascination and um, entertainment and laughter. But when the contests end. Some, sometimes a student would ask a question: What happens when the pageants, uh, the pageant has ended? You know, what what become, what comes to the life, or what becomes of the life of the lives of trans women? And then, so that's what we discuss. I I would show them some narratives, you know, um, of uh, on YouTube, and um, whether they, well, usually it gets translations, you know, if it's in their local languages, and then they get fascinated by by that. You know, they realize that. Some trans women join pageants as a form of uh, bread and butter. Definitely, I know that. I joined pageants many years ago as well when I was still in the Philippines. I was still in university. I would join uh, pageants and try my luck to win one today or another tomorrow or next week. And if I win, I would have the money to actually pay for my tuition, at least a portion of my tuition. Even if I was on a scholarship, there's A part of my tuition I have to pay. And I experienced joining a pageant and being able to pay a portion of that tuition. And if I experienced that, some other trans women actually do it even more. I know of someone who has become a celebrity in the Philippines, a trans celebrity, that uh, she's been in pageants for 30 years already. um, And she has actually um, uh, sent all her siblings to university. Wow. You know, so that happened. So, then eventually, the students are very invested in asking questions. But in spite of all of the, all of these, you know, um, successes or opportunities, uh, why is it that, uh, like, Philippine society is still not ready to have a gender recognition? So we discuss that mm-hmm. in the process, which I think is a great opportunity, you know, to also, uh, for the students to be to be triggered into thinking of the social realities outside of their own.
1: Yeah, and I know the other topic that you touch on is am I in the wrong body, which is the topic that you would also discuss with your students. I'm just wondering how you approach this discussion and is there really a process for one to explore if he or she is in the wrong body?
0: What we do here is that we invite someone who identifies as trans. So like we invite a trans woman and a transgender man, you know. So a local trans man uh, has uh, has uh, uh, agreed to appear in our course the past few years, and, uh, and a Thai trans woman has appeared uh, has uh, also agreed to appear in our courses the past few years. And then we they tell stories about themselves growing up. Um. So growing up, they they would share that at that age, a certain age, they realize that ah, uh, they're uh they they're not in the the body that matches their gender identity, etc., and what they experience um in. In their early earlier years, in their mid midlife, you know, and then in their adulthood, um, and eventually, be it's it may not necessarily be the wrong body, you know, or it may really be the wrong body. But the purpose of the session is for the the students to realize that being a woman and being a man is not about having the same body that you were assigned with at birth, you know, because for some people they they even have um non-trans, you know, those who are cisgender, um, they, they do surgeries on their faces because they're not happy with their faces, you know, like um, maybe with their eyes or nose or uh, um, color, skin color, hair color, you know. If everybody else had that kind of experience wherein they want to change some things with their body, um, but it's not about their gender. It's just changing their body. Why can't trans people... Um, just be themselves as well you know that they want to change their body to match their minds you know maybe that's one way of looking at it mm-hmm. um, but more importantly uh, we try to share the experience or the journey of transgender people to the students that it could be similar to some extent but it's very different mm-hmm. also and what makes it different would probably what makes it difficult for trans people and so that That the students would eventually understand if they are not trans or they're not LGBT, that they have layers of privileges in them, you know, the cisgender privilege, the straight privilege, that they don't go through discrimination because they are not trans. I see. They may go, we may have shared, when we talk about intersectionality, then we we share, um, let's say, the same oppression towards race and um, um ethnicity but we will not have the same we will not share the same oppression towards our gender identities or sexual orientation so we try to talk about that as well so our guest speakers sometimes even i would say something because i'm also trans uh we we would say what are the you know what are the rewarding aspects let's say one rewarding aspect is we get to discover who are our real friends you know who really loves us you know and that we value such relationships and maybe that is an eye opener to a young student you know that may be uh, oblivious of their own social relations and the need for these good uh, social relations uh, or maybe they don't pay as much attention to that to uh, to that and then we also talk about um how the small wins in our lives become big wins every day you know like for example like, okay today i didn't get any cat calls, or I didn't feel any prejudicial discrimination then I think I think the divine you know that it was a good day so that makes us appreciate every single day mm-hmm. um, so and if a student hears that maybe they would also learn to appreciate every single day that comes to their life or in their lives
1: that's beautiful and the other part I know is that in all of these discussions that you have with your students, you guys also focus on the intersections of religions, faith, and cultural ideologies and how they really work with genders and sexualities, right? Because religious beliefs are often cited as the reason why LGBTQ plus communities cannot be recognized in some markets, some countries. So in your view, how can different sexual identities coexist with religions?
0: It depends on how we want to understand religion. So, if, for example, I was raised in a religious society. Um, and how I was, what I was hearing when I was being taught when I was young is that religion is supposed to be about love. It, uh, that uh, in, 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 in the Catholic teachings, they say that the greatest two, uh, there's these there's Ten Commandments. But then the greatest of the two commandments is first, like to, God, to love God above all and then to love others as you, as you would love yourself. Um, so I just realized, you know, that not nowhere there um, says that to love others except for, you know, there is no such thing. Um, there was a situation in the in the Bible wherein um, someone was being judged for being a sinner. And eventually, I think it was Jesus who said that, let the sinless or let the innocent among you be the first to cast the stone because you have the right, you know. To, to To hurt this sinner, right, because you're judging the sinner, and then eventually that person didn't have the same courage uh the people didn't have the courage to cast the stone so if those are the things being taught in the Bible, why is it translating differently you know to in society why 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 is it that um, some of the criminalities that we read about are actually perpetrated by people who have religions you know or who come from a religious background um over the years, it's been like that. We don't have any reports we're in that cites that all of the murders and all the crimes that have been perpetrated throughout history are those that are atheists. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing. But instead, they come from different religions. Or if, if religion is not at the core of that, why is religion being used to separate people, right? Like uh, in the Philippines, we don't have divorce. And they are using religion as the, the, the discourse uh to prevent uh um uh divorce from be- from being a law and the thing is a lot of the women in who are in problematic relationships uh, with men uh suffer cycles of violence and they could not get out of those uh, relationships because we don't have divorce and then it gets worse because of poverty you know so to the poor they feel that they are trapped in such relationships. They don't have access to any legal assistance. They don't have access to the information or the knowledge because of the lack of education. They sometimes don't even have an access to the city because they are trapped in the sub, you know, in, in the, the provinces or the rural areas. So religion is not empowering the poor. It's not empowering the oppressed or the helpless. It's empowering the prejudiced person. It is it, it is spewing hate. You know it is causing divide you know so when in in the course we try to talk about that and it's different to talk about it in in hong kong because there are not too many religious uh, uh students basically like um a few of them would say that they're christians or catholics and um, a few would be let's say muslims but most would say that they're not so it's an alien concept to them so if you also experience, if you feel hate towards LGBT or indifference, um, what contributed to that if you are not religious? Well, why why is it that religious people also feel the same? You know? So I tried to make I try to ask them those questions and if they could find answers, you know, where's the hate coming from?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's very important because just now you really pointed out, you know, despite the divide or even like different religions that exist, right? They do have one shared value at the very least, which is to teach people to do good, to teach people to love. And this love should be all inclusive. And it's really just, like you mentioned, the human interpretation, you know, interpretations across different countries and markets that kind of complicate the matter a little bit. So, I mean, I mean you did point out a little bit of that traumatizing experience that you personally have experienced which brings me to sort of like zoom in on mental health for the lgbtq plus community and you being a registered psychologist um, you're probably the best person for me to ask this question as well can you tell us about any mental health issues that the lgbtq plus community goes through collectively that we should know about
0: so, well, one of the classic uh, theories towards um the collective experience of the LGBTQI plus is what we call minority stress because like it's not just LGBT but then even the racial minority or migrant minority so i I, 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 I believe like um the collective uh, domestic migrant workers also experience minority stress because they are treated as part of the minority um. Uh, let's say if you are a person of color um, and in that country or that place, you are considered to be a minority and then LGBTQ. So it gets worse if you are all of those. If you are a migrant person of color who happens to be LGBTQ, then the minority stress even increases. So the minority stress, because you know, stress is uh, something that people go through, but not all humans, you know, go through the same amount of minority stress, especially if they don't really fall part of the minority. And if they fall part of the majority, then they don't have the same stress. Um, they may be the cause of stress, right? So, for example, for trans people in particular, thinking about the toilet is already um, a cause of stress. For not, not probably for all trans people, but for many Right, because others will be very careful, especially if they are tourists. They are not aware of the the laws or regulations. Like I will, I will say that every time I go to some European countries or in Canada or in Australia or in New Zealand, I feel like I am in a different planet. You know, an accepting planet. That's that's how I feel. Um, because I don't get the same stares or I don't feel the same cautiousness. You know. So maybe the minority stress is less there, you know, compared to here. Uh, the stress there perhaps um, becomes more apparent with racial related stresses mm-hmm. because maybe there um there are some layers of racism in a predominantly white society. Uh, that so it shifts, right? So I think that LGBT people tend to have the tendency to react to to their environment. Uh, very particularly, you know. So maybe our coping styles are also different. Some of us are more ruminating than others, meaning some of us think about the most minute of experience more than others would. So others would have the tendency to, to minimize their experience. Others would have the tendency to amplify their experience. And it's all because of being part of that minority. So if I'm just highlighting minority stress, and if it gets worse, you know, for some people there is this propensity for them to experience to have mood disorders like depression or or um bipolar conditions or disorders now that becomes difficult because they may not recognize the symptoms of depression um someone would just start overeating or stop eating or oversleeping or le- sleeping less you know and not recognize the symptoms are quite serious especially if there is stigma surrounding mental health um, interventions mm-hmm. in like in particular in the Philippines um, they, they they there's stigma towards approaching the psychiatrist or the psychologist because we have like one local term that is collective towards all mental health conditions you know they say balio or saraulo or buang in other uh, dialects but because it conflates all mental conditions eventually it causes a stigma Towards society that they shouldn't approach a mental health professional because they will be stigmatized or ostracized for that. Right. So right. that adds vulnerability to LGBT people.
1: Since you mentioned minority stress, I might be simplifying this a little bit, but does that mean, to a certain degree, ethnic minorities might be able to relate to some of the stress that the LGBTQ plus community goes through?
0: Yeah. So if I can put together, let's say, two concepts like in psychology, uh, I can put on, I can, I can uh, drag into the as drag, you know, into the 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 discussion. Let's say minority stress, and then from the point of gender studies, I will drag into the discussion intersectionality. So um if I if, if in one room, I will be talking about minority stress and intersectionality with a group of my um, um uh, migrant domestic workers. Um, and then LGBT a group of LGBT uh, uh, people, then they can they will probably realize that uh, they are both both groups are considered to be minorities. And between within each group are also layers of the other. You know, like LGBT people can also be migrant workers or migrants, and then the the uh, domestic workers can also be LGBT. For in fact, we do have L we have lesbians or trans or queer um, domestic workers among them who are afraid who cannot transition you know like for example one one situation is if you are hired as a female domestic worker you cannot become male during the period of your work because you were hired as female so the the stress there is if you really feel that you are masculine you know you don't you 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 don't like long hair you don't like uh, a higher pitch voice you like wearing masculine clothes Chances are your employers will feel threatened by your masculinity, especially if part of your job is to also take care of of the, the children. and if let's say the kids include girls, they will feel that your transitioning can be a threat, mm. a threat you know to the to the girlhood you know of of one of the children, you know and all that. Um, so uh that domestic worker who happens to be LGBT as well, let's say maybe trans or lesbian or butch. Can experience a greater sense of that stress because they are part of both groups, you know, of minorities of the domestic workers group who happen to be LGBT themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and then if we talk about intersectionality, this is where I will uh, make them realize. That's why you have both of you have to work together to 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 help alleviate, you know, your conditions, your living conditions, because you will go through the same experience. Both of you go go through um in minority stress both of you experience oppressive um experiences both of you have challenges in life um and if you fight together or if you you work together you help each other then you would also be mutually benefiting you know from the results hopefully like uh if if we have policies that will improve then the living conditions of domestic workers and at the same time policies that will also expand the rights of LGBTQI people, then it's a win win for everyone. Yeah. Right? So it means maybe it means revisiting the anti discrimination ordinance, you know, making it because it's you can have an ordinance, but is it well implemented? You know, you can you can have the law or the, the policy, but are people really able to recognize that this law is in place? Because the day to day experience is something beyond everyone's control. You can I don't know if you recall that there was a situation some years back, you know, and it was recorded, I guess, that on the M- M- MTR, uh, uh, a mother was pulling away her kid from a black passenger. Oh, And that went viral. Yeah, that that, that went viral. And also, I don't know if you're familiar with this ad in China of, uh, actually, we show this in class, you know, uh, a laundry detergent. You know, we in the boyfriend, or the original boyfriend of the Chinese girl is a black guy and then she placed the, the the guy in the washing machine with the advertised laundry detergent and then when she pulled him out, he's already white. What? You know, or fair skin. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you see, So yeah. And those types of ads also happen to have, it, it, they also happen in some other places. They happen in Thailand, they happen in the Philippines. So when we keep uh, when we keep nurturing those wrong narratives, you know, that make us hate hate ourselves as much as we would hate others, then that kind of stress is going to worsen, or it's going to it's going to remain. And people will never get what intersectionality means mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, they will just think of intersections as the road. But that's the metaphor of every of our lives, you know, that we will all cross the roads, we will all find ourselves on the very same crossing point or intersections, right? And we would all want to get, to get across safely. So if we translate that into our actual lives, it doesn't really happen because the rest of us don't, don't get to cross the roads safely, mm-hmm. you know? We get stuck into where it is uh, a problem and everybody else get to cross mm-hmm. because they're not part of that minority, yeah.
1: yeah, I really appreciate how you put this intersectionality concept very beautifully Because despite not just for LGBTQ+, not specifically for that Like one of the main concepts for Apparently Asian we want to put together Is really like to demonstrate that Asian stories do not just belong in a certain corner That only matters to Asians But when they really look at it There's a lot of like human milestones, experiences That everyone of all ethnicities just experience And there's really ground for us to find like commonalities so you put it really beautifully there Brenda but going back to the mental health topic for the LGBTQ plus community I'm wondering let's say for Asia let's say in the cities that you have worked in let's say in the Philippines and also Hong Kong do you feel like there's enough mental health support for the LGBTQ plus community what more can we do
0: well, we need more visible LGBTQI service providers. Like for example, um, uh, I'm one of the few I'm not I'm not sure if I'm the only one, you know, in like in the Philippines who is trans identifying. So like I work with the psychological um center. Whenever they would have an LGBTQI client, they refer them to me. And that's the thing. There should be more. There should be many. They should you know, like LGBTQI practitioners should be everywhere, but they're afraid to embrace their queer identities as practitioners of mental health because the society doesn't seem to be as invested or as supportive. So I think in here, here in Hong Kong, that's also a case. You know, like um, I, I don't, I could not refer people to a, a gender affirming care uh, who has someone who's also. Gender queer, transgender, or at least LGBTQ, you know, somewhere in that spectrum, because they're not fully out there, or maybe they're just emerging. So that's one concern for us in Asia, you know, that we we need to have expanded opportunities, you know, for LGBTQI carers. Because that's always the most authentic journey, you know, when if you're queer yourself, you you would sometimes be convinced by someone who also went through the same experience. Mm-hmm. If you see their resilience, you see their strength. You see the transformative factors, you know, being embodied by your caterer. Chances are that energy, you know, will somehow be transmitted to you, and we sometimes look forward to that. As I remember, as a as as a young person, I'm looking for queer or trans um, counselors because I feel like I have to always convince them about my experience, my story, and it's it's not easy. So that's one opportunity. And second, we also have to move away from the classic. Um, points of view or the classic um, literatures you know that has uh, encapsulated LGBTQI identities you know and experiences like everyone is trapped in the old school versions you know like I was talking about the DSM and the ICD the the pathology years the abnormal years of being LGBT Uh, we have to move away from that because that was like almost 100 years ago when when psychiatrists and, and doctors wanted to to identify as many possible abnormalities in in human diversity. That's why one of the courses is called Sexuality and Gender, Diversity and Society, because we forget about the diversity. Like in both the Philippines and Hong Kong, and in many other countries, there is this expanding exercise of DEI, diversity, equity, equality, and inclusion, in the workplace. But every time we have all of these DEI practice, it's so rare for me to meet someone who is trans, who is practicing practicing in that workplace, right? Sometimes maybe someone identifying gay, someone identifies as lesbian, you know, but it's so rare for someone non-binary or or trans to actually be part of that workplace and always like an exception rather than part of the rule, Mm -hmm. you know, so uh, I think that's another thing, you know, that we have to walk the talk, you know, companies should um, make sure that um, their workplace is really provisioned towards Diversity, equity, equitability, equality, and inclusion, and that uh, both, all societies in Asia should already be open to um, encourage LGBTQI uh, practitioners, you know, in different fields, doctors. So I think that's what should happen. We have to encourage more LGBTQI people to be to to, to take that journey, mm-hmm. you know. That don't be afraid. If you want to be a doctor, you can be a trans doctor. In fact, you will, you will, we will need you, you know. We would need a transgender nurse. We would need a transgender lawyer, you know, yeah.
1: Yeah, it will mean so much because like it just saves a lot of time if you don't really have to go through the basics with the practitioner, even like when you go into like a counselor for your mental health problems, you don't really have to start from basics to explain how it feels to be a trans when you're actually talking to a trans counselor without mentioning anything they already understand, which is kind of like a topic that we mentioned on Proudly Asian last year during Mental Health Awareness Month, where one of our guests actually talked about it's so important to have access to culturally compatible therapists or like counselors who just understand different like cultural nuances as well so yeah this is definitely much needed but now it's time for us to move on to the next segment which is rapid bias In this segment, I'll be asking my guests biased questions that they've got asked at some point in life and in Brenda's case, biased questions that trans people get asked quite a lot. So Brenda, are you ready for all the questions?
0: Yes, let's go for it.
1: Alright, let's go. First question, if you don't look like a woman, you're not a trans woman?
0: Yes, uh, uh, we, we get asked those questions. Uh, it's just maybe it gets severe you know based on certain physical qualities like the taller you are for us Asians you know we are not expected to be as tall as the uh, like European people you know Um, but we get asked those questions a lot Mm -hmm. right Um, uh, if we have big hands or big feet if our um, Adam's apple is uh, protruding or very big you know then That that causes some insecurities towards trans women and that forces many of us to actually undergo a lot of facial feminization surgeries, you know. It's not just about having, like, the genitalia of of a cisgender woman, but sometimes the body can cause us such insecurities because others are noticing us for that. We are being um, policed in terms of our body, so to speak.
1: And the next question is, wow, a trans person can work as a lecturer...
0: This is stereotyping, you know, that a trans trans people experience that we're supposed to be working in the same field. Either we are entertainers, dancers or we do sex work or we work in the salons or we work in fashion or behind the scenes and entertainment and that is a stereotype. It's like what Asians are being stereotyped as, you know, in in, in Western societies, you know. At a all Asians look alike All Asians think alike You know, etc mm-hmm. So I guess we really have to move away From that, that stereotype And we can just do any job Because we can
1: For sure, yeah And the next one is Are you Thai?
0: Well, because we're uh, Southeast Asians we We share the same qualities It's automatic that Thai people Are the ones who are most Receptive towards uh, LGBT, especially trans. That's the assumption of everybody else in Asia or everybody else around the world. Um, in class, we sometimes I sometimes uh, make this fun. You know, we're in. Uh, I would say that Thailand is the top factory of trans people, followed by the Philippines. <laughs> so, so when I get. Ask, oh, you're from Thailand? You know, I I just say that I'm from the Philippines. Oh yes, yes, Philippines, because Philippines also produces uh, another uh, a group of trans women. Yeah, so these are stereotypes as well.
1: Right, and the next question is, did you do the surgeries? Do you have a vagina already? Are your breasts fake? Um, I get asked
0: about my breasts um, when I meet dates. You know, so when you know when. When when some, uh, well, yeah, these are the questions they ask on Tinder. Like they would ask, are those real breasts? You know, <laughs> as if breasts could be fake or real. You know, um, and um, that's very disrespectful, of course. But um, we, we we try to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, we we sometimes for some of us we we get a little bit more patient because we feel we we have this obligation to we don't have the obligation but we feel that we have to educate uh, our, uh you know the public about us and then um, i i shared earlier in my stories about being asked about surgeries and about having a vagina and those are among the worst questions that's asked of us you know as if and for all women out there you know if we talk about international women's day or women's day women's month Then one thing that women should remember Is that we are not just about our vaginas In fact uh, um, The vagina is not just A physical representation of who we are You know Um, Women with or without vaginas Are women Mm -hmm. You know Because it's not just about our vaginas That make us women or breasts For that matter
1: And finally What kind of guys do you like? Are they straight if they date you?
0: One of the most frequently asked questions because um, especially for us in the Philippines, um, we are used to the idea of um, masculinity. Actually, there is this blurred, blurred idea of masculinity and straightness. They feel that it's the same. You know, being masculine is equals to being straight. And uh, when we don't have the same discourse on gender and I- in sexuality in society, there is a kind of confusion and you live through that confusion continuously. And so when we date, uh, guys, we get asked questions by many people, you know, if the guys who are dating us are actually straight. So that's why there is this story um, that became a movie, A Soldier's Girl. It's the story of Calpurnia Adams. Um, it's a real life story. She's an American trans woman, and her, she had a boyfriend who was a soldier, and she, they had a secret affair. And eventually, when the soldier was found out by other soldiers that he was having an affair with a trans woman, the assumption is that he is gay. So they killed him. So they killed a man who was capable of loving a trans woman because of their homophobia. So that's why it's really sad, you know. For some people, they find it a funny question, uh, but what they don't know, there is so much violence and and hate and misunderstanding and trauma behind that because it's like um, preventing trans women from finding love, you know. Mm-hmm. And then also, not all trans women are attracted to men. There are trans women who are attracted to women and there are trans women who are bisexual, pansexual, asexual as well. So trans women get trans men, trans women can just be like you are you are me. So hopefully those questions don't get asked of us in the future. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. There's definitely a difference between like being curious and being disrespectful. So um thank you so much for going through these questions with us in Rapid Bias Brenda. Now, for us to wrap up the episode, as this episode is going to be part of our International Women's Day special, I'm just wondering, you know, what do you want to tell the world as a trans woman?
0: That we don't need to beg the world, you know, for our human rights, but hopefully that the world would just accept us for us. Someone who would actually write laws for us to be recognized and, uh, and, and be treated uh, well in society are probably not the people who would want to sleep with us or would want to be our family or even probably not want to be friends with us but we just need everyone's help so that we can regain what is rightfully ours that is um, rights, recognition and humane treatment that everybody else gets we have been around for a long time you know I, I mean colonization has definitely um, um, caused all of these forms of oppression for us um and that we don't want more violence to be perpetrated towards women in general, very specifically, queer women, trans queer LGBTQI women.
1: And finally, Brenda, what does it mean to be proudly Filipinos to you? Uh, to be proudly
0: Filipino is uh, to not be hindered by the lack of opportunities, you know, in our backyard. Like when I I could not find opportunities back home to be a trans academic to be. A successful or a visible trans woman in in the field I choose, um, nothing stopped me you know, from getting somewhere else. I remember uh, being told by a lot of my relatives and even teachers you know in elementary and secondary school and, and university, that I would amount to nothing if I would remain like this. But the thing is, if I could look back and tell them, I got to where I am because I am like this. I teach the course that I teach because I insisted. So I teach, you know, I teach about me, I teach about others like me. Uh, when I get to go to other countries and speak there, I get to do this this podcast. It's because of me, you know. So, um I guess that's to be proudly Filipino is to 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 embrace your, you know, your reality, right? And not be hindered by those restrictive beliefs that we should not be Ah, uh, nurturing.
1: That's so powerful, and thank you so much for being a role model for the trans community, Brenda. It's great to have you on the show.
0: Thank you, Isabel. I'm very happy to join you here. Also, and International Women's Day is every day, so yes. I hope everybody you know reminds themselves that every day is a a, a way for for us to to bring visibility for all women, and and that all women uh, should be there to look out for each other, not be selective. We don't need more J.K. Rowling around us.
1: <laughs> That's very well said. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: That's it for this episode of Proudly Asian. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at proudly.asian for more content. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Leave us a five-star review on wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and signing off for now. I'm Isabel Wong.